Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Lily Portilla. Lily is the Director of Strategic Alliances of the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences, also known as NCATS, at the National Institutes of Health. Lily has worked in the area of strategic alliances and technology transfer at NIH since 1989, joining NCATS in December of 2011. Lily oversees the center's partnership, strategic alliances, and technology transfer functions. She is also the program director for the NCATS Small Business Innovation Research, known as SBIR, and Small Business Technology Transfer Research, also known as STTR, grant and contract programs. In this role, Lily works closely with interested small businesses by providing advice and educational resources about the program. Before coming to NCATS, Lily served as senior advisor to the director of the National Center for Research Resources and as the director of the Office of Technology Transfer and Development at the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. Lily serves as an ex-officio board member of the University of Kansas Institute for Advancing Medical Innovation. Lily also serves as a member of the Federal Laboratory Commercialization Task Force on the Governor of Maryland's Life Sciences Advisory Board. Lily received a master's degree in public administration in 1992 from American University and a bachelor's degree in business administration in 1986 from the Stephen F. Austin State University, where she majored in finance and Spanish literature. And with that very impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Lily. Thanks very much uh, for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks again for taking part in the podcast. And um, generally, I'd like to start off our interviews with our guests by asking them to share with us their journey to tech transfer. Can you tell us how you got your start in tech transfer and ultimately what led you to NIH? Yeah, um, it's a very interesting story. I um, Many years ago, almost three years ago now, I... Um, uh, my husband was uh, a presidential management fellow um, and was uh, looking for a job in government. And uh, one of the recruiting brochures that he got was from the NIH. And I was very intrigued by their mission. So I actually called one of the contacts on the brochure and it told him who I was and my background and the interest I had. And he said to me, you know, you've called me at a great time because um we are getting ready to launch a tech transfer office because of the uh, changes that happen with the uh, Stevenson Wilder Act, which now allow federal government labs to um, basically do the same things that academics are, uh, can do in terms of uh, taking intele uh, intellectual property rights, um, royalties from, in, uh, um, from intellectual property. Um, and uh, we're going to start an office and, uh, you know, uh, please come in for an interview. And and basically that's that's how I got started was 
very serendipitously uh, talking to this person and these big changes that happened in federal government and the start of tech transfer, which was back in 1989. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess the rest is history. That's how I started in the biz here at NIH. And I've been here ever since doing some form of tech transfer, working for the various uh, institutes that I've um, been fortunate to work with, all having very different missions around uh, their health focus. But again, it's about how to get the technology out and into patients. Wow, that's really amazing that you've been at one place for so long. That's so rare in this day and age. That, that's absolutely incredible that uh, you actually must have found your calling and have enjoyed your position so much that you've been there so long. I have. I mean, I think NIH, um, I mean, as you know, NIH is uh, consists of 27 institutes and um, they are all you know, we're all under the NIH umbrella, but I have to say that it, they're all very different. The The cultures within the different institutes are um, vary. Uh, the scientific missions also vary as well, too. So while I've been at NIH, I've experienced very different um, uh, focus on technology transfer, depending on what organization I was with. Uh, so even though I've stayed at the NIH um, for almost 30 years now, I feel like I have gotten a, a good sense of, you know, um, the different missions that exist across the the, the whole uh, enterprise of NIH. And uh, luckily, I've been able to work with some really fantastic people and some great technology along the way, too. Yeah. And, and we'll get into some of that. I'm sure you've seen amazing technology. But maybe for some of our listeners who are not familiar with NCATS, of which you're the director, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what the center is and what it does. Yeah, um, I work, um, I am the director for the Office of Strategic Alliances and uh, at the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. It's it's the newest center at the NIH. It's It's been around for almost 10 years now. It's hard to believe. Um, we were uh, started back in 2011 uh, with the focus on looking at um, translational bottlenecks and figuring out how to address them. And, and what I mean by translational bottlenecks is, you know, why does it take so long to recruit patients for a study? Um, uh, why uh, does it cost so much to get a drug? I mean, what are the, what are the steps that could be um, looked at to make them more expedient? Um, and so that's kind of the premise of what uh, NCATS is supposed to do is to look at these uh, translational bot bottlenecks that exist in the preclinical side as well as the clinical side and see if there's ways of, of um, disseminating information to the entire community in order for everyone to, you know, do this whole enterprise of translation in a much more efficient and effective way. Yeah, and that must be valuable, especially for startups. I mean, because um, they're small, they don't have a whole lot of expertise. So I would think that's probably an area that your office um, is particularly well suited to to help with. Yeah, uh, I, I the office that I work with is, is quite unique in this in the way of it's set up. It's the only one that I know of that's set up this way at the NIH. We not only do the tech transfer functions, but we also have managed the alliance, uh, the different partnerships and uh, alliances that we have across the center. But our office also manages the small business program, the SBIR and STTR program. And I think it's an industry, you know, I don't know why more institutes don't do this, but it's, it's an interesting marriage of, you know, what's going on internally in, in R&D and then 
small businesses and what they're trying to do. And there's so many similarities. Um, and many times we find out that we're working with the not only funding the same companies, uh, that NIH is funding the same companies that we're also collaborating with, uh, certainly at NCATS. Um, so I think the marriage of those two uh, different functions um, have played very well for NCATS. Um, and again, this idea of you know how to help companies translate their ideas um, not only applies to small businesses, but also applies to our internal R&D program at NCATS. Well, given all that and all that you're responsible for, can you tell us how NCATS is organized? Because I would imagine you probably have somewhat of a sophisticated or complex maybe structure. Yeah, um, it, it, it's, it is interesting. Um, you know, I've worked in a lot of institutes at, at NIH, many um, that are very large institutes. And I, and I have to say that one of the fun things about working about NCATS is kind of its um, somewhat flat structure. And the um, uh, also the the idea that you are encouraged to work across your these different offices. Um, it, it, there have been many times where I may never interact at, in, as being a tech transfer person in a large institute with certain grant programs. The like the two never met, uh, but that's not the case at NCATS because many of our grants programs have these partnership aspects to them that make it. Um, you know, that we have to work together. So I think, um, for example, um, we work very closely with our division of preclinical innovation. That's like a, the internal R&D program that NCATS has. If you're um, used to NIH uh, nomenclature, it's the intramural side of, of NCATS. So um, we, we do a lot of work with them in terms of our, their collaboration agreements. Um, that particular group, um, is highly encouraged to collaborate. We have anywhere between 150 to 200 active collaborations at any given time. So our office is extremely busy. The, the other side of that is the extramural side. That's the grant, the grant giving side and all the different programs that we have. But many of our grant programs have um, um, a, a translational and commercialization aspects to them. So we also collaborate a lot with, for example, the, the clinical translational uh, CTSA program um, that um, that we fund. It's the largest grant program at the NIH. We we work with them, and I can tell you a little about later about a special uh, initiative that we have going on with them. The tissue chip program. There's the new therapeutic uses program. Those are all grants programs that we have a footprint in in our office in terms of helping them with um, their collaborations and um, those collaborations and are not only with academics, but also with um, large pharma as well as small business. Um, but it's a great place to work because the accessibility that you have working with across, you know, different offices and, and our director is um, very involved. He's very engaged, wants to know what's going on scientifically. Um, and I feel like that's another benefit of the office is that I have, I have access to him. You know, um, we can talk about uh, pressing issues and um, it, it, to, to, it almost feels like it has a startup way about the way it, 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 it's, it works. And I think that's what makes it very unique in a government setting. I so. was just going to say that that's, I don't think you would hear anyone else in any, probably any other branch of the government say that. So it sounds like a very unique role. So I could see why um, it's so interesting and exciting and, and why you've stayed there so long, because it sounds like a very different structure than, than other entities within, within the government. Um, 
Now you talked about some of the different programs and initiatives that you have going on. And as part of my research and looking at your website, there's a lot of programs that you have. It's about 26 different ones. Can you highlight some of those for some of our listeners who might not be familiar with some of your, maybe your bigger programs or or ones that maybe have um, more of an impact than maybe some of the other programs? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, you're right. There, there are many for being a, a you know, an in, in NIH size, a small organization, there's a lot of activity going on. Um, I, I kind of talked a little bit about the, the CTSA program, the Clinical Translational Science Award program. That's the largest grant program at the NIH. It's um, over, a, a, it's almost 600 a million dollars that goes out every year to about between 50 to um, uh, wow. 54 ac- academic medical um, institutions across the country. Um, their focus is on training and cultivating translational science, a translational science workforce, um, um, and trying to engage with patient communities in every phase of the translational process from the development. Uh, preclinical development all the way to putting, you know, drugs in patients. Um, there's also um, um, a focus on on integrating special and underserved populations in the translational research process as well. Um, and another focus is to innovate processes that increase the uh, quality and efficiency of, of translational um, research, and particularly in, in multi-center trials and how to do that um, uh, more efficiently and effectively. Um, and we also have a big focus within that program in bioinformatics, and, and which leads me to this really cool project that I'm actually working on now that is very much COVID-related. Um, and that's the, the National COVID Cohort Collaborative, the N3C program. We, we um, have done, um, talked about it a little bit. Um, And the whole idea there is to be able, um, many of these institutions are uh, putting in electronic health records of individuals that were either tested for COVID uh, or tested positively and put those electronic health records into an enclave that researchers could then mine that data um, they can't pull the electronic health record out. It's just mining certain um, fields in the electronic uh, uh, health record to determine, for example, um, why did patients with diabetes do better in one uh, you know, section of the country versus another? What was the standard? What was the treatment that they were offered while you know, that was going on? Um, uh, you know, those are the kinds of questions that you would be able to um, uh, ask uh, as part of this, um, that this data enclave will allow you to ask. And it's quite a huge project. I mean, we we have about eight institution data and we it's millions and millions of data points that we currently have right now. And it's going to be a great way of answering questions around COVID um, and hopefully finding uh, standard, you know, treatments, um, uh, standard of care, in order to help us kind of get through this this pandemic. Uh, so I'm very proud to be able to work on that program. And the role that my office has had specifically has been putting the data transfer agreements and the data use agreements so that um, researchers can, you know, access the data enclave. And that's um, so important right now, given that we have so many new hotspots in the country. That I would imagine that. 
know, hospitals and, and research centers, especially universities that have medical centers attached to them, they're, they're getting patients and then they're not sure what to do or how to treat or they're seeking something unusual. And that at least is a great resource for them to, to go to and, and try and see if somewhere else in the country, they've, you know, some other institutions, you know, seen a patient with somewhat similar symptoms or at least report it. So there's a record of it. Yeah, no, it, it, I think it's going to be a, a, a terrific um, resource that we're able to do because of the, uh, of the fact that um, we have this program and being able to have that strong informatics focus as part of the CTSA. Um, I think the, the, this N3C collaborative is going to be a really great, um, you know, another tool to figure out how to treat this very, um, uh, this, this, you know, uh, COVID-19, which I mean, it, this is, it's been a focus of ours ever since uh, mid-March and, you know, we hope to do the full launch um, in the next couple of weeks. So, uh, you know, be looking out for information on that. Um, the the other thing um, that we also have a focus on is on rare diseases. Um, and we have actually the Office of Rare Disease Research that uh, is part of NCATS. And as part of that, they um, manage the uh, GARD, which is the Genetic and Rare Disease Information Center, which provides up-to-date health information on rare diseases, like trying to locate um, uh, a doctor for a specific type of rare disease. Um, um, Also, you know, how to, uh, particular symptoms around rare diseases. It's an actual, um, uh, you know, uh, data source that you can actually, yeah, registry, You you can speak to a human. Oh, you know, wow. I mean, you know, I, I've been diagnosed with this rare disease. How do I, you know, where, what patient groups, uh, do I need to be, um, you know, know about, um, what doctors and what research is going on in this area. So it's a really great resource for folks who are diagnosed with rare diseases. And, and as part of that, there's also RADAR, which is the rare disease registry program. And, and there it's a resource to help patients who have been identified with uh, rare diseases to develop patient registries that can maybe use, be used later for natural history studies and things like that. And we kind of give, we give uh, folks um, some tools on how to develop some really useful re- patient registries. Many of these diseases, you know, have a few hundred people maybe associated with them. How do you find each other? Right. Um, and how do you make a useful registry um, uh, for your particular rare disease. Yeah, rather than searching the internet and doing things like that, which is, you know, could be very challenging if you have a very, very rare disease. It, it gives them, you know, places to connect with other people and actually get accurate information, it sounds like. Yeah, and and every year um, at the end of February on uh, supposedly, you know, it, it's uh, on, on Rare Disease Day, which is February, I believe, 29th, um, and I know it's a leap that's a leap year day, but uh, always look for an announcement around our rare disease day, which we host every year. Um, this past year, there were 700 attendees. Oh, wow. At that. And because it, it's a great way for folks with rare diseases to connect with each other, to yeah. learn about how they're, you know, managing um not only the, you know, the personal aspects of what it's like to live with a rare disease or have a child with a rare disease, but learn from each other. So um, I think it's a great resource. um, And we host that every year uh, at the end of February. So 
look on our website and we always have announcements on how you can uh, participate uh, in, in person, but also, um, um, you know, virtually as well, too. And, and then rounding things up, I'm going to um, talk about a couple of programs that we have in our um, internal uh uh, in the Division of Preclinical Innovation, which is our internal R&D, the intramural side of NCATS, um, uh, our intramural, like I said, is extremely collaborative. Um, many collaborations going on at any given time. We have a high-throughput screening center that is part of that group. Um, several hundred thousand compound library that we can screen um, and make um, miniaturized assays to our um, high-throughput screening uh, that we have. But we also uh, have several resource programs that academics and small businesses can participate in um, and apply. Uh, for example, uh, there's the Bridges program, and that is when you have a, a, a clinical candidate and maybe you need clinical material and you need to get it scaled up, you can engage with this particular group uh, that has a lot of experience in doing that. Use our contract research organizations and uh, we help you get that, that uh, you know, whatever you need for uh, maybe a, a, to get you to an, an IND filing, whatever material that you need or a, an important pivotal talk study that you might need for a, a, a filing your IND. Um, so that's the Bridges program. And then the TREND program focuses on rare and neglected diseases. And it's also a resource program. And you can enter there, you know, when you have a lead identified. And uh, that program goes up into a phase 2A. Um, so we can stay engaged up to, the, to that point, depending on the program. But these are, um, they're not grant programs, they're resource programs. So you get to um, work with uh, folks who are have been involved in drug development for much of their careers. Many of these folks worked in pharma um, and have project management associated with your project. We'll, we'll take many in. Um, and on our website, you can basically see who we've worked with and, and, and the successes that we have had. Um, the Bridges program last year was able to um, la help launch 13 INDs. That's that's a record wow. for them. That's a lot um, of INDs. Yeah, it is. It is. It is definitely a lot of INDs. And and you know about 50% of those are academic projects that um, were able uh, to then um, spin out companies through the university, um, or they were able to license the the asset to you know a third party as well too. So. Uh, but if you want to learn more about those, all that information is on our website. But I think that's one of the unique um, programs that we have at, at NCATS that really um, try to address, again, these bottlenecks. Because m much of the support that those two programs offer cannot be – you can't get that through a typical grant program. So we – we we felt that that was a missing link here, and so that's why those programs were established, and they've been um, very successful in doing what they're supposed to do. Yeah, and you hear that when you talk to uh, university inventors who maybe come up with a unique small molecule or biologic, and they want to spin out a company, but the problem is, you know, there isn't funding for you know maybe some proof of concept or getting those initial talk studies or whatever they need for the IND. So. Um, unless there's somewhat, you know, some private venture that's willing to invest at that stage, which a lot of times it's really hard, um, you know, it's hard to raise the the funds needed to to get to that step. So sounds like you guys provide 
a nice bridge there for um, university professors and, and, and academics to kind of get those inventions out of the universities into their startup and, and get them moving towards the IND stage. Um, absolutely. And, and I think that um, um, there, it's, it's, they're really great stories that we have about, you know, the fact that, you know, a researcher has been using their R01 grants and maybe an SBIR and they're just, they get kind of stuck and they're, they're in that, you know, the Valley of Death, right? They're yeah, way, they, that's they, a good way of putting they, it. Right. They, they don't have the funding in their university to kind of get them to that next key inflection point, which would be filing an ID in most of these instances. So they come to us and, you know, we'll, we'll look and, we, uh, there's a great example of, of, of an investigator um, who d- developed a, a new compound for a rare disease and who did a great job getting things to a point where she went to have a pre-IND meeting. And then, you know, they told her that she needed these two very expensive to- animal tox studies done and she was stuck. She really couldn't, just did not have the money in her university to do it. So um, she came to the Bridges program and they were able to help out. And provide her uh, the the support. The we we ran the talk studies using our contract research organizations. Gave her the data. She filed the IND, and shortly after that, was able to raise Series A funding about fifty million dollars. So, wow. uh, you know, she was in the That's valley death for a little bit, but then yeah. we were able to get her over across. Yeah, so you that, got her through the desert, as they say, and and up right. and out on the other side. And and I think that's a great segue to talking about. Um, the Office of Strategic Alliances, of which you're the director. And, and I know the goal of that office is to make it easy for industry and academia to interact and partner with NCATS laboratories and scientists to, to do exactly what we were just talking about, which is speed the translation of basic science knowledge into treatments for patients. Um, for those of our listeners who might be listening to be interested in this, can you tell us some of the services um, that your team provides in addition to some of the ones we already just talked about? Um, yeah, sure. We again, because of the group being as engaged and collaborative as it is, we're constantly um, uh, putting together collaboration agreements um, to kind of memorialize uh, um, things going on in, in the organization. Um, uh, you know, maybe some high throughput screening projects, things like that. So we're the first place that anybody who wants to engage with the outside pretty much talks to. And one of the great things about the offices, it's co-located with the labs. So, um, you know, and and I've worked in other places where we are miles apart, maybe sometimes not even in the same city. And I have to say that the fact that we are co-located does bring a different dimension into what I do because I've, I've, I, first of all, our group is super engaged. There are all, there's always people who are thinking ahead like, hey, I want to start a collaboration with this group. This is what I want to do. What are your thoughts? How can we make this happen? So I think one of the pluses of the office is that we have this context all the time, right, about what the end goal is for a specific project. And many times um, it, that means that we might have to put together a custom type of transactional agreement to get that very unique collaboration done and having that um, one-on-one discussion of people popping into your office and, and, you know, spitballing ideas about how to make a collaboration (laughs) happen is just such a, it's a plus. It it makes for a better 
product at the end of the day. So I think that's one of the pluses about the office is that the accessibility that we have to our scientific uh, staff, I think, is is great and something that um, uh, really is paid off in terms of how we manage the portfolio as well, too. Uh, that we have, we have a, um, a pretty extensive patent portfolio in the short time that the center has been together. Um, this past, um, I guess, past 18 months, we, we, a lot of these things are coming to fruition. So we had about 45 patents that were issued. Wow, um, that's and, pretty good. In about an 18-month period of time. And most of the things that we file on are, uh, are new molecular entities, um, um, which is a very different kind of portfolio than I think most of the other institutes have at the NIH. That's um, very true. You don't see a whole lot of new chemical entities, small molecules exactly. come out of the other divisions of the government. No, not at all. Right. And and our folks are always collaborating with somebody else because that that academic or that small business are the disease experts. Um, and they come to us because of our expertise around, you know, uh, we have a big med chem group um, we have a, a very large bioinformatics group as well, too, that, that is very much, and it's a matrix kind of uh, operation where um, my office, people from my office sit at the table with, you know, the chemists, the biologists, with the bioinformaticians and kind of talk through projects and figure out, um, you know, how to formulate and, and put together these collaborations. But what downstream, what do we need to look for? You know, um, how's the IP going to work here? Who's going to manage the IP? Um, what's the background portfolio that exists? What's the strategy that we can use in in developing new compounds? So um, that's kind of the level of involvement that we have with our um, investigators. Um, so we manage the portfolio. We we license um, uh, one of. Another interesting uh, piece of information about our portfolio, our patent portfolio, is that 60% of it is co-owned with somebody else. Wow. That is not... That's yeah, high. Right. That's really it high. Is, it is high and very inverse of what the rest of NIH is. It, it's it's more... Uh, what we have is a very rare portfolio from that perspective because uh, other institutes at NIH, you know, it's inventions, you know, that are made in that institute that are that are developed by folks that have been working um, for, on particular projects for years and years. And like I said, because of the fact that we are so collaborative and engaged, um, many of, of our, um, the IP that we developed has co-ownership. And much of that is not just managed, is not managed by us. So we will we will have we will manage that IP with other um, with other institutes, uh, which I think is great uh, in some respects, but also a challenge in another um, as well too. Yeah, that um, co joint ownership can be be challenging. It can you know if you have disagreements on where to file or prosecution strategy or something like that. Um, let me ask you about your agreements that you do um, as part of this collaborative effort because. Um, when I talked to, and I, I recently did an interview with um, um, Gail Tissick, um, who's um, the head of uh, global IP for um, Olympus, and, and she had also been at Wichita State University, and she talked about the length of time it takes to get deals done when, you know, you're working with academia. Um, I was curious, in terms of the deals and agreements that you do, do they move pretty quickly? Um, it sounds like you do a lot of agreements, so it sounds like they must move at a pretty, pretty good clip, I would think, that you get them done and executed pretty quickly. 
I, I, I think so. I think um, our, um, you know, research collaboration agreements um, can be done in, you know, in a matter of weeks. With COVID, we've, you know, everybody's been on the same page. When I mean everybody, I'm talking about people on the other side are all on the same page on the urgency of what we're yes. doing. We we did some COVID agreements that took a couple of days to get done. And, and I think our terms are very... Uh, reasonable. They're all on the website. So it's not a mystery. Right. Right. You know, we're the government. We, we, we tell everybody what we're doing. You're right? transparent. So, yeah, that's right. That's right. So all our templates are on the website. Um, um, and, and for those programs that I was telling you about, like Trend and Bridges, there are special agreements that we use for those programs. And again, uh, we we tell everyone up front. Look, he, here are here's where you have some uh, ability and latitude to make modifications. But these other things that are statutory requirements, we can't change that. And I think once you have that education piece, people are all on the same page and understand what you're trying to do, right? Um, so there's a little bit of education that it goes along with that. But yeah, we are able to get these agreements done. Um, I think very effectively, um, and and much of that comes with the the education piece of like what we are trying to accomplish, right? That we are we're your partner. We we are going to add value to what you're bringing to us, right? Because um, again, some of these targets somebody in academia has been working on for years, and then they want to come to us to to put a compound together, do a, a screening. And we're all on the same page in terms of what we want to do, which is to get something to a patient um, quickly and effectively. And and I think um, when you kind of lay it all out at the beginning, I think, um, you know, there's repeat customers. There's people that we've been working with for years. Some of these projects have been going on for a long time. So we do develop a fair amount of relationships with those individuals. And I think that's worked very effectively for the office. Yeah. And if the other side wasn't getting something out of it or it was a difficult relationship, it, they wouldn't come back. They wouldn't be repeat customers, as you point out, or those collaborations right. would have ended. So that, yeah. that does say a lot. So. You're 100% correct. I think when when uh, those relationships don't go that well, I think there's always been this kind of misunderstanding of what role everyone is supposed to be playing, right? Exactly. Which, right. And and no agreement, as good as it can be written, can address some of the relationship stuff that you, as a, 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 a principal investigator, need to manage on your own. And and I say that all the time, that my agreement is doesn't you know, is not going to build trust into your relationship. You do that, right? Exactly. So, That's the people part of the, the relationship. Exactly. exactly. Right, right. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the SBIR and STTR programs. Um, I understand that SBIR is meant to help support early stage R&D projects at small businesses, startups, and the STTR helps them formally collaborate with research institutions in phase one and phase two. And we've, we've touched on that a little bit here. Um, and my understanding is that both of these programs support NCAT's mission to transform the translational sciences process by helping them develop and commercialize these new technologies. And we've, we've talked about that so far. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how SBIR and STTR are structured? Yeah, sure. I, I, I don't know if, uh, um, well, I'll tell you a little um, interesting factoid. So the the NIH SBIR STTR program is over a billion dollars now every year. Wow, that must be given to small business. So if you think about it, it's probably one of the 
largest early stage seed funding, funding programs yeah. that the country has, right? It's got to um, be, I would think. Yeah. I mean, that's just NIH, right? So, wow. so I, um, for us, I think the SBR, STTR program has been a great way to leverage um, initiatives and um, scientific focus that we we want to see in in translation. Um, in, and I'll give you a few examples. But uh, I, I, again, the the program is for um, small businesses, um, and um, we have um, academics, um, academic entrepreneurs applied to it, um, small businesses, startups of few people, and it's in the different phase programs are are intended to kind of de-risk your product, right? Or whatever the idea that you want to bring to commercialization. Um, um, NIH just recently released its new omnibus solicitation and it's actually hit the street um, last week. And in there, uh, we have some new um, um, NIH caps on the program. Um, for example, a phase one the, the NH uh, cap is about 260,000 for the phase one and for the phase two, it's 1.6 million. But with that said, there are um, uh, across the NIH and this includes NCATs, we we um, also kind of go above uh, those NIH hard caps with these waiver topics that we've deemed to be topics that that cap can't just cover. So for example, there are um, certain translational uh, projects that you can um, get these budget waivers and we can pay, you know, for a phase one, uh, the award can be up to 325000 and for a phase two, it could be up to $2 million. Oh, wow. And yeah. And um, our projects that we fund typically fit into three buckets. Um, uh, one is drug discovery and development tools. Um, Examples of that might be, for example, uh, tissue chips and uh, chips that um, hopefully down the road may replace animal testing. Those right, are so you, cool. I've seen some right, of that. Right. I've seen the director of the NIH talk about those. Those are really neat sounding. Yeah, they are. And and we've we have a few companies that have actually are putting together, you know, are selling tissue chips. Um, uh, uh, that mimic particular human systems. There's one uh, that uh, uh, mimics like the the nerve n- nervous system. And so, how do drugs? How does a particular drug affect that a nervous system? And the you know, an, you right now you rely super heavily on animal testing, but these tissue chips may 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 uh, help you know, expedite drug development because you're using the chip as opposed to an animal, which, you know, sometimes is very unpredictable. Yeah, um, and some uh, diseases there aren't good animal models. Exactly. And that's a big problem. I think Alzheimer's might be one of those and a couple other neurological kind of diseases. It's really hard to find a good animal model. Right, right. Um, we, we have um, another company that we've been funding in the in in, in drug discovery and, and development that is um, using um, artificial intelligence to find um, certain drugs for rare diseases. And and that company has we funded them very early. They've done great. Um, it's recursion, uh, and they're out of uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, and they used SBIR to kind of get started. Um, the, uh, the, the PI was, um, uh, in medical school and wanted to 
become an entrepreneur. And so he applied for SBIR and, you know, they've got over a hundred people working for the company now. So, so that's a great, that's story. a great story. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is, but it, it's a great example of how SBIR can be used for these early stage to kind of de-risk a technology and maybe uh, from there on, uh, you know, after you get funding from us to try to develop partnerships and um, license the technology, you know. Um, so that's one bucket, the drug discovery and development tools. Another one is bioinformatics tools. Um, and we fund a lot of things around um, how to do bioinformatics more efficient and effectively using patient health records uh, and mining data in patient health records to uh, answer important um, questions around uh, uh, diseases. Um, um, and then the other thing that we also fund are like clinical research management tools, um, how to do a clinical trial more effectively, recruit patients more effectively, um, manage IRBs. Um, so different tools like that. Um, uh, there um, is a company that we funded called AI Cure who had this um, app, uh, app that you can use um, to make sure that people are taking their medication. If, for example, I didn't know this, but... Um, one of the issues with pharma clinical trials is that you never know um, how many of the people that are on the clinical trials are really adhering to the medication that they need to take as part of the clinical yeah, trial. Yeah, compliance is always with exactly. pharma being a huge problem, yeah. It is, and it's very expensive. Um, it, you know, that cost kind of goes, you know, roll, it gets rolled down to the patient eventually. But what this person um, um, uh, came up with was a app that you could, you know, you take the pill in front of the app and it sees you swallowing it, it records when you did it, and that information goes to the person managing the clinical trial to make sure that everyone is adhering to those, um, to taking the medication, who took it, when to, when they took it, and it's a, a cool app on a, that you could put on your tablet or phone, but that's like, uh, you know, pharma has, um, really embrace that technology because it's making sure that people are doing what they're supposed to do when they're part of a clinical trial, for example. So Exactly. Because yeah. I, I mean, them not complying and taking their medication is going to affect the results at the end of the day, or, you know, some drugs have to be taken at, at certain times or with or without food. So if you're not complying, that, that could potentially, you know, affect their results. So that, that sounds like pretty incredible technology. Yeah. And so, I mean, again, a great example of what, what SBIR can do. And, and there's many more out there. If you wanted to check our webpage, we, we post all these successes as much as we can because we want to give as much airtime to these companies that we're funding. Um, and they're really doing some really cool things too. But I, I think the program is terrific. And, and you know, another thing that I, at NCATS that we've been trying to do is how to engage women entrepreneurs in, in the program. Um, we've partnered with organizations like uh, Women uh, in Bio and um, AWIS, which is the Association for Women in Science. And, and it's been interesting talking to them because you, you learn a lot about, you know, you know what, what are the issues that, um, how can we get women more engaged, not only in the program, but how, how do we get women more engaged in, in the C-suite of companies, right? Yeah. And, and can a... SBIR help with that? Um, yep. So uh, there's a lot of things that 
uh, we've been trying to figure out and encouraging um, women to apply to the program. But I think one of the interesting, you know, data points that we have is that when when women, um, you know, apply to SBIR and they don't do well, some of them don't have a tendency to resubmit. They, they don't resubmit as much as their male counterparts. Why That's is that? That's interesting, yeah. Yeah, it is, it is. And I think a lot of that, it just goes to the, the education, but, you know, doing a better job at education about how, yeah, you don't get a good score, but by all means, you're, you're given a summary statement that kind of explains where the deficiencies in the application were. Use that as your guidepost to try to improve your application and resubmit. And resubmitting is fine. We expect you to resubmit. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of that is education that we are doing to uh, women um, entrepreneurs um, and also minority-owned uh, small businesses. And we, uh, this next year, we are participating in the Applicant Assistance Program, which was developed by um, the National Cancer Institute. And, and the idea there is to help um, uh, folks who want to apply to the SBIR, but just kind of have never applied to the NIH, what do I do? Do I have the enough data to kind of move forward? And we, we kind of give, we assign them some, um, you know, uh, someone to kind of help them put their application together. We don't write it for them, but we're just giving them tools that they need in order to position themselves. Like a mentor type of thing, like a a mentor to kind of help them along a little bit. Mentorship, but also like, hey, you know, here are some things that you you need to be aware of when it, you know, some education as well too. Yeah. Um, how how do you put a, a a really competitive application together? Um, and and you know, kind of giving them a um, a little bit of a encouragement and the tools that they need so that they're better positioned to put that application together. Um, so um, and folks can apply to the applicant assistance program, and that's something that we're going to be launching this next fiscal year, where that we're very excited about. There um, sounds like there's a tremendous need for that program, and for people who maybe are in academia and, and and not sure how to go about this, and and a lot of universities have great tech transfer programs to try and help, but you know they're um, short staffed. Um, too and don't always have the time. So that sounds like that program is going to fill a tremendous need. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm really excited that NCATS is participating. And, and I think across the NIH, you know, we, we want to see um, numbers of applications from women owned and minority owned small businesses definitely increase. We, we recognize that, that, uh, you know, it's important that we focus on that. And we, and, and I think we're, we're making some headway, but, but also if you, one of the other things that I wanted to mention, being a SBR, STTR grantee does, is also good because there, once you come, come in as a grantee, there are certain uh, resources and um, programs that you can apply to. Um, there's the uh, commercial assistance program that the NIH runs, kind of helps you um, figure out how to do a, a proper pitch to investors, um, pitch coaching, things like that. There's entrepreneurs in residence that the NIH has for the small business community. And we also have the i program that our uh, phase one grantees can, can apply to that um, teach you um, i um Invasion Corps, which the NSF, the National Science Foundation, put together, uh, teaches people how to do customer discovery. Um, you know, a lot of times um, investigators think they've invented something great, but they never ask the end user whether it is. Did I really resolve your problem that you yeah, had? Yeah, right? I, right? I, I call it an invention without a problem. Yeah, that's right. 
That's right. So iCore teaches you to do customer discovery and and ask the end user, the person making the financial decision on that product, uh, uh, the regulatory uh, people, you know, FDA, the payer. Did you know how do I introduce this product and is it really going to solve a problem that I have? And and I think that program has been pretty, um, uh, you know, life changing for some of these companies because what they learn they can not only apply to that project but future projects as well too. Um, so we're happy to offer that to our grantees and we pay the grantee to go through the program. Um, oh wow! By giving by giving them a supplement to participate in in ICOR. Oh so, wow! Yeah. That's 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 a really great idea too. I mean, why wouldn't you take advantage of it then? If, right. if you're going to get uh, some funds to to be able to participate, um, it sounds like uh, a very good incentive to do that. So, Lily, you talked about a lot of the great things that your office is doing, and and you have a lot of projects going on, but. I'm sure you guys have some challenges too. Could you talk about some of the biggest challenges that your your office faces? Yeah, I, I think um, um, my office is a small group and we do excellent work. Um, I think I have like the best people working in, in the Office of Strategic Alliances, but, you know, hiring and retention is always an issue. And I suspect that it's an issue in academia as well too. So how do you keep, staff engaged. Um, um, I always try to offer, um, you know, this idea that, you know, what do you think we could do better? And I think that has led to a lot of new initiatives uh, by giving the staff the runway to change things. Um, So I try to do as much as that as I can, because I think um, some of that is encouragement to see that you can change something and, and, you know, get folks engaged in in uh, doing a better job of 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 tech transfer. So I certainly try to promote that as much as that I I can. I think another um, challenge in the federal government is the shifting priorities that administration to administration have, and how what one what may be a priority one day. Uh, as it is important, but then um, a new administration comes in and you need to focus on something else. Um, and, and, and that's always a challenge too, because um, sometimes administrations come in and say, hey, you know what, hiring freeze, we're going to take a pause on hiring. And um, that can lead to a little bit of staff, you know, uh, a- um, anxiety. And, and sure. again, from administration to administration, I, I've lived through many of these and I can almost predict what happens when a new administration comes in. But um, I think for staff, it can be a little, uh, you know, stressful to understand, you know, it, it is what I do important and keeping them engaged and making sure that we stay on track with what we're supposed to do. Kind of calm the nerves type of thing when yeah. administ- there's an administrative, sw- you know, administration switch. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And and COVID is another great example of how a public health issue can really create um, a situation where you need to reprioritize. And we did that when the HEAL initiative started, which was around uh, how to uh, deal with the opioid epidemic that was going on in the country. So all these um, Zika, um, Ebola, everything, you know, everything that you're hearing about in the news, we are dealing with as well being the NIH, right? So um, uh, that, that, 
that means that we need to reprioritize what we're doing as well. Too. That's got to be so hard. You know, one day the fire is opioids, the next day it's COVID. And then who knows, hopefully we get the handle on this pandemic sooner rather than later, but then there'll be something else and something else. So you guys are always having to pivot. And that's always a, a challenge for anybody, you know, when you all of a sudden are full steam one, one way, and then you've got to pivot to something else. That's always a challenge. I, I totally agree with you. I, um, but, you know, um, as I say, uh, those those situations can also be opportunities. Tremendous right? opportunities. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, m- me personally, it's been those opportunities, uh, those things, those changes in administration, those uh, refocusing on a new public health initiative that have created opportunities in my career. So, you know, you can either see it as a, uh, you know, problem or you can see it as an opportunity. And I think um, at least from my staff, from my perspective as a supervisor, I always wanted my staff to maybe look at it as more of an opportunity than than a hindrance to getting something done. So yeah. I think that's a great way of looking at it. And, and I think that's a, a good segue to my next question, because you've obviously had a tremendous career in federal service as a public servant. Can you tell us what your careers meant to you, particularly in this unusual kind of crazy, unprecedented time with COVID? Yeah, um, I, you know, I, I love what I do. I mean, I wouldn't have been here as long as I have if I didn't love what I do. I, I love working at the NIH. I love working with investigators. I mean, just brilliant people that work here and everyone is on the same page in terms of what we are supposed to be doing. We really are supposed to address how, you know, public health um, and uh, concerns that the country has, how to help patients. Um, And and I think it's an admirable um, uh, mission, right, to have that. Uh, For me in particular, um, COVID has, has been a great example of that and about how everyone pitches in, does what they need to do to make it happen. You know, if you need to be on Zoom calls until eight o'clock at night or on weekends, you do what you need to do. And I, you know, I'm just so proud of what this organization is doing around COVID and um, NCATS is, is stepped up to the plate. Everyone is working so hard. Um, um, when I hear my director talk about you know, how important it is. And, and he's right. I mean, I'm, I'm 100% behind what we are doing right now. And I'm very proud to be uh, an, an employee of the NIH and in particular, an employee of NCATS. And, and I have to say that every time I see Dr. Fauci or a bumper sticker with Dr. Fauci's name on it, I, you know, I, I'm so excited about it because, you know, there's, there's just such wonderful devoted individuals working here at NIH and with COVID, it's really brought all that to light about how we, you know, we we do believe in the mission of this organ of, of the organization of, of the NIH. And I'm proud to be part of it. And I will say, I hope the general public realizes once this pandep- pandemic is over that, you know, we all pay taxes that we need things like the NIH and NCATS and things like that, the people behind the scenes that, you know, we don't think about on a day-to-day basis if, if you're not, unless maybe you're in the organizations, you're a patent attorney, but, you know, really are there um, ready and, and working on things that when we get to a situation like we are in right now, they, we have people who can jump on these things and try and find solutions to, to these types of problems. And, 
And it's, you know, really important that we have these organizations and people in place. So the next time, because there will be a next time with something else, you know, we have the science and technology to combat it even better than we did this time. So that's my hope for when this pandemic is is finally over. So it's thanks to people like you and your team and others in the NIH that, you know, we're, you know, we'll get to the end of this pandemic whenever that might be. Yeah, I, I agree with you and, and I appreciate those words. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's been it's been an interesting couple of months. And I think um, there's so many great ideas out there. I, I am very encouraged and hopeful from what I'm seeing. So um, I everyone will be hearing about it. That's yep. fantastic. So, well, Lily, I always like to end the podcast by asking the person I'm interviewing that if they could have three wishes, um, if there was a, such a thing as a genie in a bottle and, and you could have three wishes granted for your office or, or a vision for your office realized, what would that be? Um, you know, I, 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 um, you know, I, I, I could say staffing, but I'm not going to, um, I, I uh, <laughs> you have a great I, staff. Yeah, I do have a great staff. I have a, um, our director, Chris Austin is fabulous. He is, um, I've worked again, many places at the, at the NIH. And I have to say that he's the most engaged in terms of this enterprises strategic alliances. And he believes in what we do. And he knows that what we do is part of this of translating uh, a a treatment and an intervention to a, to a patient. I guess um, if I had a, a wish it was it would be that um you know the rest of NIH would view tech transfer in the same manner not as not as something i have to do but something that is necessary for me to do to get my idea uh my 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 drug my intervention out to um a, a patient and that, and that i've got to give uh tech transfer um uh the um you know the tools that they need to get that done. Um, but you know, maybe, um, the respect it, 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 you know, some respect as well too. So I, I guess for me, those would be the things that I would love to see for the whole enterprise of tech transfer at the NIH. I would love to see that too. I think so much could be accomplished if it, it was viewed by others in, in NIH that way. So I, I think yeah. that's, that's a great, uh, a great wish. So, well, Lily, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Sure. So um, you can reach me at Lily P, that's L-I-L-I-P at N-I-H dot G-O-V. Or you can go to the NCATS website um, and uh, uh, go to the Strategic Alliance page. We have uh, a link there to contact our office. Um, and uh, we're always happy to listen, figure out how we can engage with others. Um, so. Um, I, I'm not kidding when I say I invite all comments and um, opportunities and we'll, uh, we'll look at them and, and always looking for good collaborations out there. Awesome. Well, thanks so much again, Lily. It's been great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer, 
and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and align on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.